0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Unpatched and beyond end-of-life systems are, again, at risk. Conti ransomware appears to be steadily displacing its ancestor Ryuk in criminal markets— are privacy laws as consumer-friendly as they're often taken to be? There may be some grounds for doubt. German security services warn of the espionage potential of Chinese companies' data collection. Huawei's skepticism grows in Germany, Canada, and the UK. Zuli Ramzan from RSA on Zero Trust. Our guest is Conan Ward from Complex on the unfortunate reality of cyber insurance in light of the third anniversary of NotPetya. And Ray Hushpuppy says the feds didn't extradite him they kidnapped him From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 10th, 2020. At the week's end, there's more news of attacks against unpatched or outdated systems. The first one affects Citrix systems. Attackers are actively scanning for recently patched vulnerabilities. In Citrix Application Delivery Controller, Citrix Gateway, and the Citrix SD-WAN WANOP appliance, the SANS Institute reports, users are urged to apply the patches as soon as possible. When Citrix issued the patches at the beginning of this week, there were no signs that exploits existed for the vulnerabilities, but that's changed. Sands says its honeypots have found attempts at exploitation, so again, patch as soon as possible. The second issue affects systems that are out of date and no longer supported. A Zoom zero-day has been found that affects older Windows systems, Windows 7 and earlier, that are beyond their end of life. Too many of these remain in use, according to a report on the Zero Patch blog. Exploitation could enable an attacker to execute arbitrary code on the victim's device. ZDNet says Zoom is working on a fix. The company said... Zoom takes all reports of potential security vulnerabilities seriously. This morning we received a report of an issue impacting users running Windows 7 and Older. We have confirmed this issue and are currently working on a patch to quickly resolve it. End quote. The Zero Day is another reminder of the degree to which the continued use of systems beyond end of life represents a threat to security and privacy. Across Security, proprietors of Zero Patch, has put out a mini-patch to hold affected users over until Zoom has finished addressing the issue. Security researchers Pierre Kim and Alexandre Torres report finding vulnerabilities in widely used fiber-to-the-home and optical line termination devices sold by Shenzhen-based C-Data. ZDNet observes that of the seven vulnerabilities found, the most serious is the hard-coding of Telnet accounts and the firmware. These grant intruders full administrative access to the devices. 29 C-Data models are affected. The devices are used by ISPs at the point where fiber optics connect to the end user's Ethernet connections. Kim and Torres published their warning without notifying C-Data, and they did say they did so because they believe that some of the vulnerabilities were intentionally placed in the devices. Sleeping Computer reports that Ryuk ransomware is fading, while its malware sibling, Conti, which with Ryuk shares code, is rising. Carbon Black researchers share some details of Conti's workings. This represents a shift in the criminal markets and not really either an increase or decrease in the overall threat of ransomware. The same precautions you should take to protect yourself against this kind of extortion remain as important as ever. But Conti does represent an evolutionary upgrade over Ryuk. It is, for example, manually controllable by its operators. That might seem a step back, since we're accustomed to thinking of automation as, well, newer, better, and shinier in every respect. But that's not true in this case. It enables subtler operation. Carbon Black said, quote, The notable effect of this capability is that it can cause targeted damage in an environment in a method that could frustrate incident response activities. A successful attack may have destruction that's limited to the shares of a server that has no internet capability, but where there is no evidence of similar destruction elsewhere in the environment." Data brokers continue to collect information for the benefit of advertisers— and TechCrunch concludes that existing laws seeking to inhibit them are unlikely to do so, at least as those laws and their attendant regulations now stand. Duo Security ran its own test of the California Consumer Privacy Act and decided that even finding out what data were collected is just about prohibitively difficult. Preventing their sharing with third parties seems even harder. Chinese companies and their products have continued to attract fresh skepticism from governments that formerly welcomed or at least tolerated them in their national markets. The AP says that yesterday's annual report of Germany's BFV, the domestic security agency, warned that consumers providing information to Chinese companies may also be providing it to the Chinese government. Thomas Haldenwank, the agency's director, told reporters that any customer here in Germany who uses such a system shouldn't be surprised if this data is abused in Beijing. We can only warn against this. End quote. By such a system, Herr Haldenvank meant not only obvious big Chinese companies whose business deals in large quantities of information, companies like Tencent and Alibaba, but even smaller, easily overlooked outfits like bike-sharing apps. The grounds for the BFV's suspicions are the legal obligations Chinese companies have to provide data to the Chinese government. There are, however, other concerns being voiced in Berlin. Horst Seehofer, Germany's interior minister, said that the government had yet to reach its political decision on whether to permit Huawei to supply equipment to the country's cell service providers. But he sounded a distinctly cautious note. He told reporters, quote, When it comes to critical infrastructure, in the energy supply, or now with 5G lines, we have to consider how we can protect ourselves. Huawei also received a grilling in the UK where Parliament's Science and Technology Committee heard from a company senior British executive, Vice President Jeremy Thompson, who testified to the company's willingness to permit its employees to freely express themselves and that the company represented no extraordinary threat to civil liberties. His evasive answer, however, to a question by committee chair Greg Clark about his views of the new Hong Kong national security law undid much of the intended effect of his testimony and probably did Huawei's case little good in Westminster. The Telegraph bluntly says that Chairman Clark tied Mr. Thompson in knots. And in one of the other five eyes, Canada, which had remained on better terms with Huawei than its four Anglophone sisters, Global News reports that experts see official opinion moving toward a more restrictive approach to the companies. And finally, the first outline of the defense of Ramon Alaronwa Abbas is now growing clearer. The Nigerian national is well known as an Instagram influencer under the name of Ray Hushpuppy, who's currently facing U.S. federal charges alleging his involvement in Internet scams. Mr. Hushpuppy's attorney says his extradition to the U.S. from Dubai was illegal and amounted to kidnapping. Seems like a bit of a reach, but we shall see. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Conan Ward. He's CEO at Complex Underwriting, a New York-based insurance company. Our conversation centers on the complex reality of cyber insurance in light of the third anniversary of NotPetya. Here's Conan Ward.
1: At that point in the marketplace, uh, when NotPetya hit, you had a um, some disagreements over what we call in the industry affirmative or non-affirmative or silent cyber coverage. Hmm. And so... Um, you know, in traditional property and casualty products, there are exclusions that have existed for a very, very long time. And so, you know, two of those kinds of exclusions that are almost universal are are war uh, and and fidelity. This idea of an employee behaving dishonestly uh, or in a criminal way. Well, those those are two of the uh, more important <laughs> sources of 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 loss and mayhem uh, with respect to uh, an owned network of a potential customer, and so just saying something like, "Oh, well, we'll we'll cover cyber uh, inside of a property policy," you know, in in many ways isn't really the right approach, and I think. Customers liked it because they felt like they were getting uh, a coverage grant for free or for not a lot of money. But the reality is that product isn't designed to do uh, to cover a a cyber network.
0: What are your recommendations for folks who are concerned that they don't want to be just you know checking off compliance check boxes? You know, we, cyber insurance check, we've got it. You know how do they go out there and and know that they're properly covered?
1: Yeah, I think they should look at a variety of the coverage grants. I think most of the dedicated cyber policies do some of that. Um, you know, they almost mm-hmm. all have a crisis management element. They they have third party coverage, first party coverage. That you know, most of the exclusions that clients would would worry about are, are gone. I think that the bigger challenge for some customers is, can they buy enough cyber, dedicated cyber coverage to uh, to fulfill their needs? And defining those needs in terms of financial quantification, um, I think we as an industry and, and working with the clients um, have to help clients quantify better uh, what their security profile would dictate in terms of a, more of a stochastic, financial, uh, view of, of risk because that informs uh, a lot of different things. Uh, you know, in, it informs how, how much you spend for resilience, how much you spend on prevention, uh, and, and how much insurance you should buy and what you should spend for it.
0: Hmm. Is there any talk in the industry or any fear in the industry that cyber insurance could, could end up similar to the way we, the situation we have with, say, flood insurance, where, you know, it has to be underwritten at a federal level because the the potential losses are, are so significant.
1: Uh, you know, I think that's a reasonable question. There is certainly uh, a huge role for uh, for private enterprise in this whole thing, and. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think we as an industry and, and the client base have to do more work to quantify the kinds of losses that that we think of as as truly catastrophic. You know, if we think about three billion in loss from not pet yeah, that's a big number, but in the context of a 911 or uh, you know a Category five hurricane hitting Miami. Uh, or half of california falling into the ocean you know three billion is not a big number are there possible numbers a lot bigger than three billion to be sure cyber is unique in as much as there's there's a lot more it's a lot more like terrorism if you it's got a game theory quality to it where you've Mm -hmm. got where you've got adversaries on both sides trying to trying to outwit each other and so if the adversaries get the upper hand uh, and have some artisan level malware that impacts everybody uh, at the same time and brings down a bunch of the web service providers you could well be looking at the kind of catastrophic event where it would make sense for some federal involvement but that would be at a very very high level and that kind of risk is worrisome It's a systemic, non-banking kind of risk that, you know, I would argue with nuclear biological, radiological terrorism, EMP weapons, other acts of war, you know, there is definitely a a place for the federal government in those things, but not to crowd out industry. And I think, uh, you know, I think industry can handle most of what goes on. But again, you know, there is always that smaller probability of an artisan level attack that can, that can take down um, multiple web service providers and, and, and really put the economy on its heels. That's Conan
0: Ward from Complex Underwriting. If you want to hear an extended version of this interview, head on over to the cyberwire.com. You can find it there in the CyberWire Pro section. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Dr. Zulfikar Ramzan from RSA. Zuli, it's great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on zero trust. Uh, it's a hot topic and I'm curious so what your take is on it. How do you come at this?
2: so zero trust, as you noted, Dave, is has been an incredibly hot topic. It's predicated on this very nice notion of, of you know never trust, always verify, and this is meant to replace this age old adage of trust but verify. Hmm. And and the goal with zero trust is that in in a security context, trust is kind of a negative notion, right? The idea is that if I am trusting something, that usually means I am implicitly required to trust it without really having any assurance that it's trustworthy. And so what you want in security is not to trust something, you want systems that are trustworthy. You want to avoid what you have to trust because that's usually a a bad assumption to make in many cases. And so I think the goal with zero trust is fundamentally, how do I reduce my trust surface? How do I minimize what I need to trust? And so in in that way, I think it's become very attractive, but I think also has many pitfalls associated with how you implement it correctly.
0: Well, let's go through that. What, 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 uh, What are your concerns?
2: So first of all, I think it's important to realize that the idea of zero trust, even though the nomenclature is relatively recent, introduced about ten years ago uh, by John Kindervog and analyst at Forrester, the notion itself, the concepts underlying zero trust, have been around for a lot longer. So, if you look back in the '70s, you know Salter was talking about least privilege. You know, in, in the late '70s, the early papers on cryptography, the rivest and Edelman paper and the Diffie-Hellman and Hellman paper, talked about certificate authorities in the context of them being trusted authorities. And it was noted that trust was a negative notion in that context. You know, Ken Thompson gave a wonderful lecture in 84 when he won the Turing Award called Reflections on Trusting Trust. And so uh, many of these notions have been around for a long time. So first of all, people should not think that zero trust is something that's brand new. Uh, many of the technologies in the industry have already evolved to help organizations manage and reduce their trust surface. So I think that's the first thing to, to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that at a fundamental level, Zero trust is not a reachable goal, right? You're never going to get to the point where trust is zero because ultimately systems are too complex. I mean, maybe I trust, maybe I've got a device and I've I've been able to do some elements of being able to monitor that device. But that might not be enough. I mean, the reality is that do I know about every line of code in that device? Do I know how that code was compiled? Do I know about every software component? And at Hmm. some level, you kind of run out of the ability to really uh, dig that deeply. And so I think you never get to zero trust but it's more of a journey, and I think it's healthy to have a zero-trust mindset, but never to expect fully to reach zero-trust.
0: What are your recommendations for people to dial that in, to put forth a reasonable effort, um, You know, balancing all, all their, their available resources, you know, funds, all those sorts of things?
2: Yeah, so I think the main thing is to keep in mind that there's no sort of one technology that gives you zero-trust. It's not like some vendor says, and a lot of vendors have done this in their marketing material, they say zero-trust everywhere, and they give this implication that they can help you solve your zero trust woes that they're one piece of the puzzle. Uh, but the reality is that uh, zero trust to get it done correctly or to really approach zero trust in any organization requires a variety of, of technical capabilities. You have to have strong authentication with the risk engine so you can ensure that all resources are accessed in a secure manner regardless of the location. You may want to have identity governance and lifecycle and various types of, of access control mechanisms around knowing that access control is handled on a need-to-know basis and is strictly enforced. And finally, you also do need monitoring solutions that includes network monitoring from logs and packets to endpoint to cloud and SaaS and and beyond, maybe PaaS and IoT and so on and so forth. So you can inspect and log all traffic, which is a critical component of being able to always verify. Right? If you don't have visibility, how do you know that things are going in the right way? So I think that really those those elements are, are key approaches to making sure you have a complete technology stack for being able to address these issues. But really, the, the more important point is that these issues help you get towards zero trust. But really, zero trust has to be not just a mindset. You've got to think about the right strategy you want to use to approach zero trust. Uh, in that vein, I tell people, look, take a, a risk-oriented approach. There are many things you can do that would help reduce your trust surface, but only a handful may make sense for your organization. So for example, you know, if you um Look at something like client-side TLS. Uh, that would help organizations achieve zero trust because, in a way, that you're really enforcing that your clients are included as part of the authentication process and, and creating strong mutual authentication. But ultimately, client-side TLS would be a terrible idea if you're an e-commerce vendor because that would prevent your customers from getting to your assets. And mm-hmm. so, even though there's a technology that's helping you get to zero trust, it may not be the right technology for your environment. And there may be many paths towards reducing your trust surface. The real focus has to be, in my mind, a risk driven approach that accounts for your overall business priorities.
0: All right. Well, Zufakar Ramzan is the Chief Technology Officer at RSA. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dave.
0: And that's the Cyberwire.